Bob Bowie. Hey, I'm Eugene Driscoll from ValleyIndy.org, and welcome to Naval Gazing, the Valley Indie podcast. Today, my guest is Zach Galligan, the star of Gremlins 1 and Gremlins 2. Galligan is appearing August 27th at CT Horror Fest, a genre convention at the Matrix Conference Center in Danbury, Connecticut. That convention, by the way, is organized by a bunch of people from the Valley, Seymour and Derby specifically. In the interview, Galligan names which horror character he'd most like to get drunk with, why he hated working with Bill Murray back in the day, and what's up with this 1980s renaissance happening with shows such as Stranger Things on Netflix. For more info on the CT Horror Fest, go to cthorror.com. First question I wanted to ask you is going to be weird. I'll just say that in advance, but it's something we like to ask uh, horror actors and fans. Uh, Which horror movie character would you most like to get drunk with and why? (laughs) Very funny question. Um, I think the answer is fairly obvious. Although now that I'm thinking about it, maybe it's a tie. Okay. Um, I'd probably like to get drunk with R.J. McCready from The Thing. Right, right. Why um, him? Why R.J.? Oh, because I think you'd have kind of a fun, cynical, back-and-forth conversation about everything from <clears throat> helicopters to women to dogs. To, I don't know. It would just be sort of like a fun, bourbon-drinking, manly man kind of a scotch conversation, and it would be great. Nice. And then you said it's a tie. So who's number? Uh, who's the other one there? Oh, probably Father Karras from The Exorcist. I've seen The Exorcist, which I just watched about a week ago when he's at the bar with the other priest and Ramblin' Man by the Allman Brothers is playing in the background and he says he lost his faith. Oh, that's right. Um, I think uh, I think it would be it would be. As long as he wasn't complaining about his mom too much, I'd probably enjoy him because he seemed like a cool guy with being a boxer and kind of a, I don't know. I, you know, if I'm going to go and have a, a beer with someone, it would be nice if they're like a screen tough guy. There you go. Zach, you were a very dark, dark man, uh, just based on those two, uh, those two picks. I'll just editorialize <laughs> there. And then just if you indulge me for another moment, what horror movie character would you least like to have a drink with? Hello. Yeah, no, I'm here. I'm oh, okay. Sorry, thought I uh, thought I lost you. These, these are not uh, you. These are not normal questions that you get. <laughs> the normal <laughs> questions you get are like, "What was it like to work with CBK? <laughs> um, I've got those too. Maybe I should have I should have thrown this out here, then asked you all the the, the basic ones, and, and then went back to it. But uh, we've had answers like at least uh, my answer is always uh, any uh, Sherry Moon zombie character from any of those Rob Zombie flicks. That's uh, that's uh-huh. mine. That's funny. Um, I would probably say I, I probably wouldn't want to get a drink with the Donald Pleasance character from Halloween. Right. That man's not a good, uh, not a good uh, psychologist or psychiatrist, is he? Well, the thing about Donald Pleasance is, despite his last name, he doesn't seem like a particularly pleasant person. Maybe <laughs> he was, but he tends to play you know, characters that are not, um, you know, that are pretty intense. Nice. Okay. Well, hey, I appreciate you uh, indulging me and in, in doing those wacky questions. You know, a little icebreaker. Why not? 
yeah. So you're appearing August 27th. Uh, it's not like me and Zach are, uh, go back a long ways, or he's just calling to chat because he likes me. He's appearing August 27th at the CT Horror Fest uh, in Danbury, Connecticut. And for more info on that, go to facebook.com slash CT Horror Fest. I've been to the the others. It's a good time. It's a, it's a good growing show. And uh, if you go there, you can meet Zach. I mean, what else do you want? Uh, let's talk about Gremlins. Well, you, you might, you might want to meet George Romero, who's also going to be there. Who? No way. I'm going there for you. I've seen Romero. <laughs> I'm kidding. No, Romero. That's that's a good one. I mean, that's this is I, I'm this is going to be uh, the one that I think puts CT Horror Fest, you know, on the map. When you get uh, the, the lineup is good, and yeah, Romero yeah, is the, good. The Romero's the, uh, the, the like the headliner, I guess. For sure. Uh, but let's talk about Gremlins. Enough about. Uh, uh, George Romero. Uh, do you listen to Gilbert Gottfried's podcast by any chance? I don't, but I've, I've certainly, uh, I'm certainly familiar with him. I've actually met Gilbert back in the day many times. Yeah, it's sort of his podcast is, is sort of circling uh, your early work in a lot of ways, because just recently, within like the last three months, he had Dick Miller on and he had Joe Dante on. And he had a pretty extensive conversation with uh, Joe Dante about Gremlins. And Dante was great. I mean, I don't know what he was like to work with, but he was really funny in the podcast, very candid. And he detailed how tough it was to make Gremlins because the crew was essentially inventing the technology for those little monsters as filming progressed. And he essentially says that the experience burned him out, which is why he didn't immediately jump to make Gremlins 2. And I'm just wondering, how old were you? What were you, like 19 when, when you guys made Gremlins, the first one? Yeah, I was 19, um, and the experience didn't burn me out because of the way that the movie was shot. Um, well, first of all, when you're 19, it takes a lot to burn you out because you have re- relentless energy, hmm. and you're excited about everything you know in life. You're, you're still in college, and you're like, wow, this whole thing is terrific. Look at that. It's blue sky. You know? I mean, you're just like super optimistic most of the time. And so we shot for four months, but... We shot the gremlin human interaction scenes and, mm-hmm. and the, the, you know, the stuff with Gizmo. And then once we were done on August 4th, I believe, 1983, starting the next day, Joe Dante and everybody um, started doing effects only shots. And they did that for an additional four months. So whereas I only had a four month shoot, Joe Dante had an eight month shoot. But and even- an eight month shoot is because at the end of the four months, I was tired and definitely ready for a break. But the idea that I would was only halfway through is pretty shocking. Hmm. And of course, when you're the actor, all you have to do is show up and say the lines, listen to the director and go home. When you're the director, you're the captain of the ship and you're dealing with budgetary costs and time things and what needs to be cut, what doesn't, and effects that work and don't work. And you know, a lot of them did not work because, like Joe Dante said, it was very cutting edge at the time. They're inventing stuff on the fly. Mm. So, yeah, I found out a lot about the stress level on this movie when we did the 30th anniversary podcast for Empire Magazine. Um, Chris Wayless was there, and he he, he told the, the podcast, and this is the first I'd heard of it 30 years later, that he had a, basically had a nervous breakdown on Gremlin, at the end of wow. Gremlins 2. Yeah, so now, um, I would figure, I would assume, and, and you're, you're correcting my, my assumption, I mean, if I was a young 
person, 19, and uh, here I am in, in this, ma- I mean, this was a major studio picture. This Steven Spielberg w- was attached to it. Uh, and you're, you know, they had all the wiring up your sleeves, and you're, you're, you're essentially, uh, you know, uh, acting with, with, with uh, toys, uh, for lack of a better word. Uh, but you weren't thrown by that in any way? You weren't, I would think that nerves would consume you, uh, but that, that, it, that wasn't the case. And how did Dante, uh, Joe Dante help you uh, in any way? Well, I would I would I would correct you in a small way by saying that the nerves in the beginning um, definitely got to me. Uh, I mean, when I first of all, when I got there to Los Angeles to shoot it, I'd never been west of the Mississippi, hmm. so and I couldn't drive because I was a New York City kid. <laughs> so now I'm in Westwood, Los Angeles, 1983. Uh, L.A. still looks like the Beach Boys. You know what I mean? It's right. like everything was, you know, you walk outside, everybody's dressed like flash dance because that was the, the rage at the time. And literally every girl, every single girl under 19, like has the torn T-shirt on one shoulder. Right. Yeah, sure. Everybody's listening to like really new wavy music. Like I Stop the World and Melt With You and, and Flock of Seagulls and, and the English Beat. That's what everybody, Duran Duran, that's what everybody was listening to. It's funny because I can associate the, all the music from that period of making the movies so strongly associated with it because it was, you know, we listened to the same radio station in the van that took me to the set every day. Again, as I told you, I got driven to the set every day because I couldn't drive. Hmm. Um, by the time we did Gremlins 2, I was living in L.A. and had my driver's license to drive myself to the set every day. And so, were you, so yeah, go ahead. And you were, you, were, you were saying nerves in that very beginning. Nerves. So in the beginning, I can remember very clearly, um, I would wake up, my alarm was set to go off at like 7 a.m. I'd wake up at 6 a.m. in my bed, paralyzed with fear. I have this, I have this feeling like, I can't do this. There's no way I can do this. There's no way I'm going to be any good. I'm going to be terrible today. I can't do this. I, I didn't even know if I remember the lines. And then I would start doing the lines over and over again in my head to make sure I had them. And then I would force myself to get out of bed. And when I got in the shower and the water hit me, I thought, okay, you know what? Maybe I can possibly do this. You know, possibly I can do this. Yeah, yeah. And then by the time I got into the car, I was feeling like, okay, I think I have the lines down. Yeah, I, I, think, I think I can do this. I think I'm okay. And by the time I got in the makeup chair, I was convincing myself, you know what? I got this bad boy. I got this. And I did that every morning for probably the first two to three weeks until finally someone came to me and said, you know, we're looking at the footage and you and Phoebe look great. Everything looks great. We're excited. And, you know, you guys are fine. And I got that pat on the shoulder. Mm-hmm. And then once I got the pat on the shoulder, I thought, okay, I'm not going to be fired. and This isn't going to be a disgrace. And I'm not, you know, it's not going to be something catastrophic and embarrassing. But yeah, I was deep. Why on earth would I be secure? I had only done one one or two things before, I had no track record and no reason to have any confidence. So guess what? I didn't. And and but you you just powered through it. You didn't like go for. Uh, you didn't confide in anybody, any of the other cast members or the director or anything like that. Oh no, no, no I didn't confide in any of the other cast members because my feeling was that they wouldn't <clears throat> they wouldn't understand mm. because they all had more experience than I did. And Phoebe's was Phoebe was in Fast Times. The movie came out was a hit. She and I would go out to a restaurant, and everyone was all over her. Nobody knew who I was. Right, right. You know? So she was the star. So she was, like, calm, cool, and collected. She already had a hit under her belt. So what is she nervous about? 
So what's she going to say if I go, I'm really nervous and scared? What's she going to say except either, oh, you'll be fine, which doesn't mean anything, or, yeah, well, you know, it's tough, which will freak me out. So the last thing I wanted her to do was go, well, yeah, you know, you're kind of just doing okay. So I'd, I'd step it up a notch. Like I was terrified that she would say something like that <laughs> after just working with Sean Penn, for God's sake. That's right. So the whole, the whole world's anything. in that movie. Yeah. So I didn't say anything to anyone. And what am I going to do? Call my mom. My mom doesn't know anything about acting or show business. So all she would say, you'll be fine, dear, which I knew at the time, of course, meant nothing. So, no, it was all just private internal terror until basically, <laughs> basically I kind of figured out one day that I'd shot so much on the movie that it was almost impossible for them to fire me because it would simply just cost too much. There you go. You had that on your side. Yeah, I was basically like, hey, guess what? I just realized I'm a month in. I don't think there's any conceivable way <laughs> that after burning through like $3 million that they could fire me and start again from scratch. And, and you know, Gremlins, I mean, I was in 1984, I was 10 years old. I probably saw it uh, when it came out on VHS. You know, I didn't go see it in the theater. But I remember distinctly uh, the controversy. Uh, I was sort of a, you know, a movie junkie even as a kid. Uh, between, you know, Gremlins was a subversive little film, and, and I remember watching it, and you're, you're expecting uh, Steven Spielberg uh, sort of nostalgia, uh, and it has that Steven Spielberg uh, touch, but then it gets, it's a dark movie, and it, of course, it's it and uh, Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom are responsible for the PG-13 rating that we have today. I was watching some interviews with you at, I think, various Q&As, were you surprised what you saw on the screen? Was that what you were, were expecting when you when you made the movie? No. When I saw the first cut of Gremlins, and I've told this story a bunch of times, but uh, I saw it with Phoebe in a small screening room, and Joe Dante and the producer, Mike Finnell, were sitting about four or five rows behind us, um, probably watching us, since they were fully aware of what the movie looked like, engaging our reaction. When it was over, Joe and Mike kind of it was kind of amazing because they were kind of nervous and they were like so what do you think like it was amazing to think that they were nervous about our reaction because hmm. we're both 19 i mean i guess i'm just a little arrogant now but I, my feeling is like well what would i care if the two 19 year olds in the movie didn't like it you know what i mean like but anyway they actually were sweet and kind of cared and i remember i said something like can I, can I just talk to Phoebe alone for a second? And they were like, uh, sure. So that was a weird re request. And we went outside and I said, did you like that? Like, was it any good? I mean, that's such a, that's like the weirdest movie I've ever seen. It's like a cartoon <laughs> or something. I expected it to be like aliens. I expected it to be like, which hadn't been made, but I mean that tone, I expected it to be like, you know, or war games. I expected it to have like an action-y feel to it. Yes. With some suspense. And like the bar scene was just a giant Looney Tunes cartoon gone insane. Uh, and the tone, the, the tone completely threw me because it didn't feel like what I was making. It didn't feel like my internal experience really at all. And I go, is it any good? And she was like, I don't know. She's like, I, I think it might not be that good. I, I don't know. So I said, well, what do we do? And she's like, well, let's just go back and say that we loved it. You know, I mean, what else are we going to do? So we went back and we were like, yeah, no, it's cool. It's amazing. It's interesting. You know, it's this and that. And I think we were both nervous uh, for about a day. And then the next day we went to the premiere at the uh, Chinese theater in Hollywood. 
And it was one of the most riotous, raucous people screaming and throwing stuff at the screen premieres you've ever seen in your life. And by the time we got to the gremlin blowing up in the microwave, Mm. the reaction in the theater was so loud and deafening that you couldn't hear the ding on the microwave. I never heard that joke until about the second or third time I saw it. It's very much a Joe Dante film. I mean, it sort of was, uh, I think when it came out, at least from my memory, Spielberg was, that was, uh, you know, as you know, popular and as influential as he is now, that's when he was, you know, his career was sort of still rising. Uh, he was, it was sort of marketed, from what I remember, as almost a Steven Spielberg film, but it seems like it's very much true to Joe Dante's sort of wackiness. Is that correct? Well, I think I... one of the reasons, I think one of the reasons why people got upset about it is if you're really brutally honest, it's a subversive Joe Dante movie, 100% marketed by Warner Brothers mm. as a cute and cuddly E.T. version number two, right down to the poster of my hands holding the box. Right, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. Young, young kid, young boy with a pet. Teen, but you can tell by my pants and my hands that I'm older than like Henry Thomas and E.T., so it's like teenager with adorable pet. Come on down. It's like grown E.T., grown up, fun for the whole family. So everybody raced down, and for 54 minutes, they got exactly what they thought. And just as they relaxed, Joe Dante, like, kicks you in the stomach for the next hour. Yeah, and Dante said that, and this was, again, on that Gilbert Gottfried podcast. I get all my uh, news and information from Gilbert Gottfried's podcast. He, he said that no one believed in Gremlins. I guess he meant the studio. This was prior to its release. Uh, and I, he said that people just didn't get it. Uh, did you sense of any of that uh, during filming? You know, it's so funny. I'm just so blissfully positive and unaware. And when we did the 30th uh, anniversary podcast, I was like, I guess I'm the only jerk who thought it was going to be a hit from the beginning. I said, <laughs> but I'd like, to st- I'd like to say, go on the record and say, I was correct. There you go. And Dante said that he prefers the sequel, which uh, I, I think would be uh, maybe surprising to uh, conventional wisdom. But he, him and, and Gilbert Gottfried said that they prefer uh, the sequel. Does that surprise you? Um, it doesn't really surprise me that much because, um, my guess is, and I really, what's so interesting is I don't really know that much about the genesis of Gremlins too, like how Joe Dante got with Charlie Haas and everything like that. But my guess is that Dante had complete control Mm. over Gremlins too. So since therefore Gremlins two is much, much more his sensibility and his vision than Gremlins 1 was. So I don't under, I can't imagine why he wouldn't like a more complete version of his vision than an incomplete version. But you said you, you personally prefer that, that first one. I like the darker tone, and I like it to be... I think the thing that's great about Gremlins is I still think it's one of the greatest... Um, examples of tone shifting in a movie, the way it goes from scary to funny, back to scary to funny so effortlessly. People have tried that so many times. It's very, very difficult to do. Hmm. You, you, can, um, you can kind of like count on one hand the kind of movies that are successful in doing that. Um, I think 
American Werewolf in London is successful doing that. I think this uh, New Zealand movie Housebound recently was successful in doing that. Um, you can argue that parts of Krampus mm-hmm. are successful in doing that. Uh, it's a very tough balance to be, to be kind of mean and vicious and then turn around and go, ah, we're just kidding. You know, and the perfect example of that in Gremlins is very disturbing scene of like the Christmas tree, attra- the gremlin, the Christmas tree, but it seems like a Christmas tree attacking my mother. Right. And like almost kind of oddly like choking her and, and almost borderline sexually assaulting her. Cause like the Christmas tree is like between her legs. It's like very strange and dark. And you're watching this going, what the hell in a PG movie? It's like crazy. Right. And yeah. then all of a sudden I come in, I cut the head off and you, you know, you watch the head burning and you sort of have that moment of relief. And then you look and you see the gremlin blow his nose on the curtains. And that's like ridiculous. And it makes you kind of forget and laugh at all the horrific stuff that just happened in a really, really clever way. Very, very difficult to do that in terms of tone. I think it's very easy to make a slapstick comedy like Gremlins too, like a mad, kind of like Mad Magazine. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, it, you know, I just think it's. I think that's an easier thing to do than it, what Joe did in the first one. That, that's just my opinion. Uh, yeah, I tend to agree with you. That first Gremlins is it's a unique movie, uh, and it's inspired a whole slew of ripoffs, uh, like sort of uh, oh, yeah. low budget ones. Uh, let's talk about this '80s Renaissance uh, that very much seems to be happening. Particularly in sort of uh, horror movies and the like, the sort of genre picks, uh, you can really notice it in horror. There was Ty West's House of the Devil a few years back. Very, I think yeah. it took place in the eighties. Uh, more yeah. recently, there was this insane telekinetic movie called The Mind's Eye, released like a, a week ago. Very much like uh, Scanners, and uh, of course Stranger Days or Stranger Things. I'm sorry, the uh, on Netflix. <laughs> Which is uh-huh. just I, yeah. I, I haven't seen it yet, unfortunately, but I'm gonna. I'll probably watch an episode. Yeah, it's it's really good. I mean, just you know, don't take my word for it. But it's just like hugely entertaining, and it seems to go. It's not some of these things almost seem like remakes or they're 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 nostalgia. But Stranger Things really seems to sort of capture the soul of uh, the '80s. Uh, yeah, I, I strongly recommend it. But do you have any idea? Have you thought about? I mean, you're you're one of the most iconic movies of the '80s, Gremlins. What's going on uh, in in film or in our culture? Is it just nostalgia? Does this happen all the time? Or are the are the '80s now the new '50s? Are we looking back fondly as the '80s as this innocent time, given everything that's happening uh, in the U.S. and the world? What's happening? Yeah, I think it's the latter. I think the '80s have a certain sweetness to. Th- and a certain lack of viciousness to them that people really yearn for. And I think people get a little tired of cynical culture, you know, that for every, and I haven't seen it, so I'm not criticizing it, but like, for example, I hear that Suicide Squad is kind of like what they call edgy. Mm. And I think that there's, that's great. And there are movies there that are edgy and that are fun, but I think that there's sort of like a certain type of kid that is over edgy and we never really liked it in the first place hmm. and prefers to be kinder and gentler <laughs> to use the eighties, George Bush term. Um, first George Bush, you know, the, the kinder, gentler, sweeter, more innocent thing. 
you know, and if you look at some of the trends and some of the stuff that's just so ubiquitous, like bad news and terrorism and ISIS and the spread, the, just the availability of porn and the we- weird things that are happening to young kids and the depression and everything, the complexity and the internet and the social media, it's probably super overwhelming. And then they see something like the 80s and they go, wow, that seems so nice and fun and simple. And I think they have, there's a real desire to, and a yearning to return to what seemed to be simpler times. I mean, I, I, I really don't know if they were simpler at the time because, you know, you, for, you know, you didn't have, uh, you didn't have terrorism, but you had the cold war and that was scary. You know, Russia would blow you up. Right. Any second, so it yeah. may just be, it may, you know, hindsight may just be 2020 and Sweden. And what about, I'm going to ask you questions that you always get asked. It's Gremlins 3. There's been tons of talk of a reboot of some kind. Have you heard anything lately about that film? Well, you know, you can kind of guess according to the IMDb uh, page. And if you look at the Gremlins 3 IMDb page, you can almost tell, in fact, you can tell this about almost any movie. Um if you look at the IMDb page and you watch its progress, you can see that first they posted it and they just had Chris Columbus and Steven Spielberg. And then the next change was they hired a writer and that's where it's stayed. And so if you know anything about the making of studio movies, you know, what's happening is the writer is writing stuff and the studio and Chris Columbus and Spielberg or any combination of those three, are either liking what they're getting or not liking what they're getting or sending the writer back for rewrites and re you know, I mean, uh, right. screenwriters, most people won't believe this, but screenwriters sometimes rewrite a script 10, 15, 20 times. Mm. You know, there, I mean, there's an expression in Hollywood writing is rewriting. That's basically all it is. It's like, it's not just the notion you write a screenplay and do like one or two drafts and hand it in. I suppose that happens. I think it's exceedingly rare. Also what happens is a person can write a draft and they can polish it a couple of times and everyone can sit down and look at it and go, yeah, it's not exciting or good enough. I just, the whole thing I don't like, and you can scrap the entire thing and start from the beginning. So the answer to your question is, I think they're very serious about Gremlins 3. I think they're probably going to do it, but I think they want to get it right and I bet if you looked at the, if you'd followed Jurassic World, I bet they took a long time getting that script right. And then once you have the script in place, if you're a good filmmaker, like Chris Columbus and Steven Spielberg are both excellent filmmakers, they know that once you have that script, which is essentially the blueprint, it's pretty hard to screw it up. Hmm. Yeah, so like my guess is that they're, they're writing it, and when they have something they're happy with, I think it will start to move into production with, with tremendous speed because I think Warner brothers wants and needs this because it's a, uh, it's another installment in a successful franchise that has huge recognizability around the world. And that's exactly what studios want to make now. And uh, the other thing I was asked on, on Twitter by one of your fans, can you tell us or give any details about the waxwork versions uh, coming out on Blu-ray, I guess in October? Yeah, I can, I can give you, Massive details. Um, October 18th is the street date. Um, Tony Hickox and I, just last week, we did two 
I think, pretty hilarious uh, commentaries about Gremlin, uh, Gremlins, about Waxwork 1 and 2, um, that I think were very honest in it. I think Tony dis- you know, discusses what he liked and didn't like and what he had money to shoot and what he didn't have money to shoot and, you know, parts of the movie that he, like, can't watch because of the limited budget. And, and so he's very open and candid about his likes and his dislikes of the movie. Oh, those are the um, best. Those are the best commentaries. Those are the best. Yeah. I mean, we're not just sitting there kissing the movie's ass. I mean, we, we, we say we like, we say what we like, but we also say what we don't like, you know, about our own work. Mm-hmm. And I, I kind of talk about things from an actor's perspective and he talks about things from a visual perspective and we've been great friends for 30 years. So it's kind of like, you know, it's kind of like, uh, even though we're both sober, it's kind of like getting drunk with us for two hours and watching the commentary. <laughs> that sounds awesome. So that's coming out in October. And the one last thing I wanted to ask you about, and you've probably been asked a million times too, but it's just fascinating to me. Tom Schiller's Nothing Lasts Forever was, it's probably the most famous uh, quote unquote lost movies there is. And you filmed that right before Gremlins or at the same time? Correct. Okay. Before. So I, what was it? I mean, I've seen just bits and parts of, of, of that movie, uh, uh, you know, on YouTube. I think it was it was briefly on, on YouTube. Uh, it, it's been aired a, a bunch of times. But how did like filming that compare to Gremlins? How did you? I mean, that had to be sort of a one eighty, I would guess. Well, I mean, in many ways, that was an even more mind blowing experience than Gremlins because I'm a high school senior. I'm doing this. MGM movie, the lead in an MGM movie with Bill Murray and Dan Aykroyd as my senior project. <laughs> I'm in New York. I have no idea what I'm doing or very, very limited idea. I knew how to act on stage, but how to transfer it to film acting. I was pretty lost. And the director had, I think, a pretty tough time with me the first week um, trying to convert me uh, into a film actor. And, and he didn't really, Tom really didn't have... Um, the language that he needed as a director, as an acting director to, to time, kind of uh, tell me. So in many ways he had to sh- just simply show me. Hmm. So what we would do is he'd be like, you can't do it like this. You have to do it like this. And then I would go and try and he would go, no, that's not it. And we'd do it again. And finally I would get it. And I would have to, at 18, have to figure out and translate what he was kind of t- requiring of me. And then finally he said, said to me something that really sent the light bulb off. He goes, he go, I go, what about this? He goes, no, he goes, that's wrong. He goes, you're just making faces. He goes, how about this? He goes, instead of smiling in your mind, think of a smile. I said, what? He goes, just think of someone smiling. So I did. And he pointed to me, he goes, that's it. He goes, if you think it, then we see it just like a real person who's thinking. So all you have to do when I, when I want, when you want to communicate something, is think it. Don't do anything with your face. And I went, oh, right, okay. And then I think for the rest of the film, my performance really smoothed out and got a lot better. I can still see the parts where I'm a little clunky in the beginning that obviously we probably sh- maybe should have reshot, but we didn't have the money or the time, as almost nobody ever does. So, But, it, but it's pretty seamless. I mean, you'd have to be very... Um, very, I think you have to be very, very skilled in, in camera, on-camera technique, you know, in order to get it. I think, like, Michael Caine could probably be like, oh, yeah, there, you're doing this. And I'd be like, yep. And he's like, but most audiences probably wouldn't pick up on that. 
And for anybody that doesn't know, this was a uh, uh, Tom Schiller was sort of born out of the SNL shorts from the original Saturday Night Live uh, in the late 70s. And he made this film and it was basically, uh, I guess, the studio. And I'm not 100 percent familiar with with the back uh, backstory, decided it was unreleasable and it kind of became this uh, sought after uh, uh, movie. It's got to be. And it, of course, it had, like you said, Bill Murray. Dan Aykroyd, Imogene Coca, even Lawrence Tierney is listed uh, on, on IMDb as being in this. Uh, so you're a kid at that point. Uh, Bill Murray, what was that like? Well, you know, this this uh, story with me and Bill Murray has been told multiple times in just about every interview, but it's still pretty kind of amazing that it, that it happened. You know, Bill, Bill at the time was sort of going through a little bit of a methody thing, Hmm. Where what what he thought was, he goes. You know, he thought to himself, "I want to." We played enemies in the movie, mm-hmm. and he he didn't want to like pal around with me on the set, and then like he was afraid that if he palled around with me on the set, that the, a lot of the tension between us would be lost because I was inexperienced. So what he thought, actually, rather correctly was that if he antagonized me about 80% of the time, that I would dislike him intensely. So, but at the same time, he didn't want me to dislike him intensely because at the end he wanted to say, hey man, you know, it was great working with you and I hope everything's okay. And you know, I was just kind of like playing along and whatnot. <laughs> he didn't really want me to like loathe him. So he would come to the set and he would be like occasionally nice to me, but most of the time he was a dick. And it was actually incredibly heartbreaking because he was one of my idols. And I was like, oh, my God, stripes. Oh, my God, meatballs. Oh, my God, this and that. And he would do things. My mom would visit the set. He'd antagonize my mom. (laughs) My sister would visit the set. He'd antagonize my sister. It was, like, amazing. And it worked because I hated him by the end of the movie. And then, of course, what's so funny is I went to Columbia, and about a year later, they were shooting Ghostbusters on the Columbia campus. Okay. Now nobody knew what this was. We just they just had, saw a bunch of cameras and this hearse with this weird logo on the side, and them wearing these ridiculous suits. Nobody knew what Ghostbusters was. The movie hadn't come out yet, but I knew them. I just worked with them about eight months ago. So I went up to the barricades and I waved to them. And Aykroyd, who is you know arguably the nicest human being in show business, just like this total sweetheart sees me and I don't know how he saw me with all the kids and people watching, but I was like waving. I guess I was the only person like really aggressively waving and the other kids were just staring with their mouth open. (laughs) So I was waving and I got his attention and he taps Murray and Murray looks and I can see Murray looking at me squinting and then I can hear Murray and he goes, it's the kid. (laughs) And Aykroyd waves me over. So I go under the blue police sawhorse, and as I do, the security um, like stops me because you're not going to let people go under the thing, right? And Murray walks over and goes, "Officer, no, 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 it's okay. He's with us." And I was like, "Oh my God!" One of the great moments of my life. So I walked over to them, and they showed me the car, and we started talking. And Dan Aykroyd was like. Uh, uh, you know, because Dan is so nice that he's like, call me Danny, you know, so I've actually never called him in my life, never called him Dan. I've always just called him Danny because that's what he asked me to call him. Mm. So I was like, how are you? And he's like, hey, man, I was working with Spielberg because, of course, he worked with him on Twilight Zone, the movie in 1941. 
all about the same time of that. Yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. And I was like, oh, he was great. You know, he wasn't really there much. He was shooting Temple of Doom and Murray. And, and Murray is a completely different person. Being nice and friendly and doing being jokes and grabbing my head and giving me noogies and everything like that. And I was like, that is so weird. This guy is so weird. And then I realized later, I read some article with him where he talked about, you know, why he did what he did with me. And as an act now, as an adult, it makes complete sense. But at the time, it was totally traumatizing. And is it satis- I mean, it's got to be satisfying now to see that uh, people, it, there's an awareness now about Nothing Lasts Forever. It was sort of a hidden movie for a very long time. Uh, it's one of the strangest, first of all, it's one of the strangest movies I've ever done. Hmm. It's still, I mean, even today, I still think it's a bizarre movie as much as I love it. And I do love it. Uh, I think it's really brilliant. And I think Tom Schiller is a deeply brilliant guy who, who's, who has a brain unlike most other artists. I mean, he just sees, thing with the, sees things with that, that incredibly unique perspective. Um, but the fact now that it's like getting uh, uh, viewed, it's, in many ways, it's even better that it sat on the shelf for as long as it did, because now it's this unbelievable treat. I think it was ahead of its time, and now people are ready for it, and they're sophisticated, and they get it. And I just, I think, I think to quote the Beach Boys and Brian Wilson, I think that movie just wasn't made for those times. It really mm-hmm. wasn't. It was made for now. And I'm super thrilled because I'm going to uh, the United Kingdom in the first week of December this year, and I'm uh, bringing over a copy of it, and I'm going to show it to the British audiences who are dying to see it for the very first time, and they're going to lose their minds. Oh, that's wonderful. Awesome. Well, Zach, you know what? I, I took up uh, enough of your time. I, I want to thank you again uh, for, for taking the time to, to chat with me. Uh, and if anybody wants to see Zach, he's going to be at the CT Horror Fest. That's coming up Saturday, August 27th in Danbury, Connecticut. Uh, you can follow him on Twitter at ZWGman. And again, the CT Horror Fest on Facebook, facebook.com slash CT Horror Fest. Zach, thanks so and much. Yeah, can, yeah, go ahead, go ahead. It's the same ZWG man, which, by the way, people are like, what does that mean? It's my initials, Zachary Wolf Galligan, ZWG, oh, and then the word man, because I'm a man. And so it's ZWG man. It's that on Twitter, and it's also that on Instagram as well. Nice. Yeah, and I was, you got a good Twitter feed. There's always, there's always good stuff on there. Uh, so that's always good. Yeah. Hey, man, I'm up to 18,000, almost 200 people. Yeah. All right. Good. So when this publishes, retweet this because we need we're nonprofit, Zach. We need some, we need all the help we can get for God's sakes. All right, buddy. All right. Take care. Thank you. He hates bright lights. You know, there's some things I forgot to tell you guys, and they're really important. Number one, he hates bright lights. We know that. But you got to keep him out of the sunlight. Sunlight will kill him. Number two, keep him away from water. Don't give him any water to drink. And whatever you do, don't give him a bath. And probably the most important thing, don't ever feed him after midnight.